Paul Sheeran Jewelers in Dublin, Ireland has been synonymous with diamonds and designer watches for over three decades as both a jewellery brand and a retailer, stocking world-recognised watch brands. As Paul Sheeran's business evolves, so does the luxury industry in Ireland, seeing a new chapter for luxury brands in the country, in particular watches, with the opening of seven new luxury boutiques in the heart of Dublin City. In this episode of Tech Powered Luxury, we'll hear how Paul Sheeran went from leaving school at 15 years of age to studying watchmaking at the Irish-Swiss Institute of Horology, Diamonds in Antwerp, and today orchestrating the largest hard luxury retail development in Ireland that we've ever seen, opening boutiques for Cartier, Tag Heuer, IWC, Breitling, Jager Le Coutre, Panerai and Montblanc. Season two of Tech Powered Luxury is delighted to be sponsored by Solista Beauty, a multi-award winning beauty brand that combines cutting edge technology with natural and high tech ingredients to create products that are both effective and gentle on the skin. Focused on bringing the power of cryo-inspired beauty to the masses, Northern Irish entrepreneur Una McGurk teamed up with world-renowned South Korean dermatologists to create an at-home, salon-quality, authentic beauty brand that is at the forefront of innovation in the industry. The tech-powered luxury community enjoys a 15% discount when shopping at solistabeauty.com. Simply use the code TPL15 at checkout. Hello and welcome to the season two finale of Tech Powered Luxury. This is Ashley MacDonald, your host, and I can hardly believe that we've had 30 consecutive weeks of Tech Powered Luxury episodes going live since November 1st, 2022, with a couple of bonus episodes thrown in as well, making this episode 33 of Tech Powered Luxury. With listeners from all over the world, the podcast has featured consistently in global charts, particularly within the fashion and beauty categories, ranking as high as number one in Ireland, Singapore and across the Middle East, number two in Malaysia, number three in India, a top 10 podcast across Asia and Europe. And now we're starting to make an entry into the Northern American podcast charts, thanks to our first USA guest, LA-based Tuyan Nguyen, agency owner and former LVMH and Remy Quantro executive, who gave us an incredible episode about all things culture and community, particularly in the USA. Tech Powered Luxury started as guest lectures in various business, fashion and design schools and later involved over the years into entire courses and modules for the National College of Art and Design in Ireland, ESSEC Paris's Luxury MBA, HEC Paris's MBA and Executive MBA and Naoma Business School's Masters in Luxury Management. So I've also had the absolute pleasure of spending many days and weeks delivering in-person lectures to the future leaders of the luxury and tech industries. This podcast was born out of a need to bring those insights, those ideas and those stories to a wider and broader audience and democratizing and breaking down those barriers of education is really at the core mission that I have with this podcast. And I'm so happy that I took the plunge and did this because I can tell you it was way more work than I expected, but it's also been far more interesting and I've gotten so much out of it as well, not just from the guests that have come on and what I've got to speak to them about, but also from people listening and reaching out and giving me their feedback, whether it's constructive or positive or just purely to let me know that they listened in. Every message really does make a difference and I really, really appreciate it. Evidently, the intersection of both luxury and technology in all of its facets and forms, from product development to pure innovation, online sales, community engagement, they're topics that designers, brands, technologists and business people alike needed to understand and really harness the power of. 
So over these last 30 weeks, we've touched on many different topics, but we still have many, many more to cover. And of course, technology in particular moves so fast that we really cannot predict what new innovations will be instrumental to the evolution of the luxury industry in the next months and years. However, we can be open to continuously learning from each other. Our season two sponsor, Solista Beauty, has been instrumental in bringing this season to life and the Solista Beauty CEO and co-founder, Una McGurk, also shared her own story as a serial entrepreneur in the beauty and wellness space. Understanding early on that innovation and in particular the use of science and technology in skincare would set her brand apart and bring fast and effective results to Solista's clients across the globe. So I really encourage you to go back and listen to her episode if you haven't had a chance to yet because it's a masterclass not just in skincare but also in how to lead and create companies, how to build culture, how to find your investment and the capital that you need to do so as well which is often the first hurdle that people don't overcome and maybe don't pursue because they think that the funding and the capital isn't out there for them but there are always, always options. So for the season finale and episode 33 of Tech Powered Luxury, I am absolutely honoured to have Irish jeweller and businessman Paul Sheeran as our guest to wrap up what has been a very much tech and soft luxury focused season. So to bring us back to the roots of the luxury industry with the focus on hard luxury, watches and jewellery, as well as the luxury client, luxury branding and even the role of education in the industry for both the practitioners and the clients. So sit back, relax, get ready for a masterclass from Paul Sheeran on all things watches and jewellery, recorded live from Ireland's newest and largest luxury environment on Chatham Street, just off Grafton Street in the heart of Dublin City. Before we jump into the episode with Paul Sheeran, I wanted to say a big, big thank you to everyone who has been contributing to Tech Powered Luxury, from our listeners to the amazing guests and the whole team working behind the scenes. We've got over 20 people contributing to this season on production, making sure that as many people as possible can discover the podcast, bringing the highest quality possible. So if you've enjoyed our first season or our second season, please don't forget to subscribe, share and leave the podcast a rating as it really does make a huge difference. Thank you. And let's jump into this episode with Paul Sheeran. Paul, hello and welcome to Tech Powered Luxury. Thank you very much for having me. I am absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast, especially as our first ever trained watchmaker and jeweler. First for everything. So let's start. Let's hope I don't disappoint. No. I know that you've had a really extensive career as a businessman, but also as a jeweler in Ireland and particularly in Dublin, you have been in business now for over 33 years. However, in the past couple of months in particular, you've had a massive acceleration in your business, opening these incredible seven new boutiques, seven, not one, two or three, but seven on Chatham Street in the heart of Dublin, where we're recording live from today. So we might have a little bit of background noise, but it's worth it for us to be here within the magic of this incredible space. Yeah, it's been fantastic. And actually, uh, it's been nine boutiques, you know, actually, well, sorry, seven, seven boutiques and two shopping shops. So it's been a, it has been a pinch me moment and, and also we're getting a chance to come up and breathe now at this, this exact week, which is fantastic. And I kind of look at it all and said, my God, I did not think it was going to be that big a challenge. But one we've met head on and we've completed, which is fantastic. So it's great to get it across the line. Sometimes, Paul, it's better just to not know in advance how much work it's going to be. You're, you're absolutely right. And, you, you know, but I, I'm surrounded by fantastic people. We had a great team from the very beginning. 
we we didn't we crossed all T's and dotted all I's. And you know the way the project actually worked was probably not ideal, but it was ideal. So sometimes be careful what you wish for. You know, there's there's so many different um, layers to use the phrase when you do something like this. We had nine sets or ten sets of architects, a shop fitter for each of those guys, um, the overall GC looking after the general contractor looking after the overall job. So many people involved and trying to have the right people to manage all those people was a massive task in phase one to get the, and, and we were hoping to have all of the boutiques open on one day back in November, I think. And we were lucky to get four of them open four days before Christmas. We were initially, I suppose, disappointed that that would happen because we missed a lot of our Christmas business. Uh, however, it was kind of probably a blessing in disguise because it gave us the opportunity to have a soft opening, get the team right in the first half of the shop, get rid of any gremlins. And then the second phase opened in March, actually just literally, I think, just maybe after Patrick's Day or before Patrick's Day, and which is the 17th of March, if anyone out there is, doesn't know when the world turns green. So we got the second four units open then. And again, so another a batch of another part another team came in to run that and now that we have them all open we're sort of into phase three of the whole project which is getting the hours right we're going to be opening till seven in the evening we'll be opening seven days a week so we're just getting another team to come in so you can see how the 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 income is gearing up as well as it goes along so it's a we we know we knew after four days here in this I slept on Christmas Day, put it that way. It's incredible to hear about the agility that you've approached the first weeks and months with, having that approach of asking what times, what opening days actually suit your clients. It's really actually surprisingly not the approach that we see a lot in the luxury world, which can be notoriously slow to move and adapt when it comes to those details. I mean, look at major luxury stores on the Champs-Élysées that have queues all day long at peak hours during the week, yet they've for the most part, remain closed on Sundays and don't stay open later or open early. But I really think in, in Ireland, uh, it's part of our culture to be open to change and to adapt and perhaps to want to capture more business opportunities. So it's really great to see um, that all of these tiny changes are c- consistently happening and that they're orientated around the client. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you can't be flexible, you know, I have a, I have a sort of a, a, a motto, you know, that I use for myself and life doesn't work for the company, very simply. So nothing, you know, you make a rule today, you break it tomorrow. Does it work for the company is the question I keep asking myself. So what is the greater good? Like we're here to run a good business. We're here to make a successful business and we're here to work with all our brands. And ultimately, I don't pay the bills. It's the people who come in to purchase, pay pay the bills. So as you said, it is very important. We keep them very happy and we are experiential. So it's not something we rush. You shouldn't be throwing people out of a store like this at six o'clock time to go so and we have to learn to relax and you know you have to how do you put it um it's our industry i think it's a mindset yes i absolutely agree you and you have to understand the people who are coming into you if you know what i mean 100 percent. what are their needs and what is their life and i i sometimes use what i use a lot in here does the handbag match the hat um and the phraseology that you know, if you look at a nice watch, what is that person's life? What are the car they're driving? Where do they holiday? What is their expectations? So we are moving and we want to really make sure we offer the best um, experience in Ireland for our industry. Fantastic. Paul, if we take a 
back a couple of steps because although the opening of these boutiques is absolutely at the centre of everything today for you and your business, this is actually a story that has been in the making for over three decades. So I'd love to go back to the roots and ask you, who are you and what led you to where you are today? So my name is Paul Sheeran. I'm 55 years of age. I'm consistently smiling. Um, I left school when I was 15. Maybe that is why you've always been smiling. Yeah, maybe. You know, I, I had a very intelligent father who had the sense to know that I wasn't the cleverest kid in school. And uh it wouldn't necessarily be my thing. Uh, now, I wasn't a troublesome kid or anything like that. I, my idea, I had four sisters, and when they came home from school, you know, how'd you get on today, girls? My parents would say, and the girls would be, oh, Dad, two Bs, two Cs, two As, whatever. How'd you get on today, Paul? Three goals. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a very different world. And, uh, but I was always good with my hands, and my father wanted to get me a trade that was languageless that I could do. In, in, when I left school, uh, a lot of Irish people were emigrating, heading around the world. Ireland wasn't such a great place to be. It was quite a dark country at the time. The economy wasn't good. It was in tough recessions. Lots, lots of people were heading to Australia, to America, Europe, everywhere. So my father wanted to get me a skill that I could do if I did move anywhere in the world. And he was a bank manager. So he had this idea that he, he never saw a poor jeweler in his bank. So he had this, he, so he, no matter where he worked from Athlone to, to London, to, to Dublin, all, always his jeweler, you know, had a good lifestyle. The kids got well-educated. They um, got nice holidays, you know, a nice, not, I'm not saying the most opulent life, just a good life. And it, also it's a clean job with decent hours. Yes. So dad put a lot of thought into this and he said, look, there's an industry that I'd like him to get into. So he said, how do you think about watchmaking? And I suppose I shrugged my shoulders and go, yeah, yeah, do I get to leave school? Yeah. Okay. I like it. And this is when you were 15. Yeah. Wow. So I didn't really can't say that I always wanted to be a watchmaker. I can't say this was my vision from the age of dot. I think I probably wanted to be a Formula One driver. Ah, um, Or a footballer, getting all of those goals at school, like you'd said. uh, Formula One was my thing, actually. I had this fascination with our downhill skier. But but anyway, I I ended up getting into the school and failing the entrance entrance exam. I remember that because everyone was actually doing a leaving cert standard and I was an inter-cert standard. I was very upset and... uh, because I really did want to, probably leaving school was my thing, and I did like the idea of this. But the, the, the gentleman who ran the school was a gentleman, it was called the Irish Institute of Horology. I have a bit of a lisp, so you'll have to excuse me. <laughs> that is a very hard one to say. I think you were set up for failure with <laughs> yeah, I know, the Irish Swiss Institute of Horology. So, and the, the head of the school was a gentleman called uh, Mark Gole, Herr Gole. And his family were very prominent watchmakers in Switzerland. So this was run with the Irish government and the Swiss government um, VCs. A very, very, really good school. And we probably didn't, as students, when we were in there, realise how good a watchmaking school this was. It was recognised as one of the top watchmaking schools Definitely in Europe. Here in Dublin, wow. Yeah, outside of Switzerland. Turned out a lot of very, very successful watchmakers since it opened, I think, back in 1965 or thereabouts. And uh, unfortunately, it closed a few years ago. But somehow or another, sometimes, I remember the Steve Jobs talk that he gave the students of either Stanford or Harvard called Join the Dots. Sometimes you don't realise why things happen until later in your life. Lo and behold, two days before term, 
the headmaster rang my father, started, and he said, we have one space left. Send your son up and I will talk to him. And I remember arriving up on the first day and nervous as I don't know what. And uh, he sort of said to me, he said, Paul, he says, this is it. I will give you three months. If you fail your Christmas exam, you're out. Do you understand? And I just remember nodding my head and going, yes, sir. I was like, stand to attention. And he was just a brilliant teacher. I was scared of my life of him. And after three years of studying watchmaking, there was no two people in the college closer than myself and himself. We got on brilliantly. Wow, it was clearly meant to happen. It just worked. And I put my head down from the day I got in there and that was it. So I qualified as a watchmaker, done. So when I was qualifying as a watchmaker, my, my eye has always in business been on the next thing when I'm on this thing. So you're doing this one, but I am kind of wondering what's next. So it's not right, that's been done. So what am I going to do after this? So I was thinking, what do I do? Do I go grape picking in France? <laughs> um, which was actually something I wanted to do. Don't know why. I reckon you can still go grape picking in France. I would love to have done that. Or get a job or not even not only that though what's my next step so I felt I knew watchmaking very well at that stage or to the level that I wanted to do it I wasn't sure whether I actually wanted to sit at the watchmaking bench so it was great to have the skill set and the knowledge into the Swiss watch industry and it was the premium Swiss watch industry which at the time was probably hemorrhaging because you know, the Japanese were creating Seiko Citizen quartz watches were becoming the norm and this was really damaging the mechanical watch industry. It was a huge technological shift. Massive, massive shift, which actually changed with the invention of the Swatch Watch, believe it or not, which was taking the Japanese on at what they do, but from a Swiss point of view. But anyway, how did I get there? I decided then um, my next step is I wanted to know about jewellery and I kind of wanted to be an all 360 person in my industry. So I started studying myself um, Simple courses, like there, I think it was at the time called the Retail Jeweller, which was correspondence courses run by the jewellery industry in the United Kingdom. So you didn't do these classes or this learning in person and obviously not online, meaning correspondence, it was by post? No, yeah, these were just all, um, uh, you had to do it at home. So um, correspondence, okay? So they'd send you out your exams, you to do them, you have your workbooks, your work, you've got to study the whole way through. In hindsight, I, I looked at it at the time and saying this is very simple, but to this day, I use things I learned on these courses. You always learn. So then... I progressed to get it. When I was doing that, I then progressed to work for jewelers in Dublin and I wanted to learn about the diamond industry. So the Swiss watch industry gave me, it brought, it, it elevated me. So I knew I wanted to work with nice watches and nice jewelry. So I started to work with jewelers in Dublin. Um, and then as I was doing that, one wasn't, it was a great company, but I wanted to learn more. So I worked for a second company who very, brilliantly taught me a lot about diamonds and how that, how to make a diamond ring, how to buy a diamond, how to pull it all together. I then had the opportunity, again, my brilliant dad uh, said to me a few years later, he, as I said, he's a bank manager and he said one of his customers had a jewellery shop who, that was selling it. And he said, look, if I help you get a loan, would this be something, would you be interested? And my dad would always drive me. He'd always, you know, it was great for um, encouragement. So that was a lovely thing. And uh, I'd say to everyone to encourage your children, you know, as I try to do it with my own today. So this shop came together and I think a 25,000 euro or pound loan, I think was what I got at the time. And lo and behold, boom, I'm in business. Now, I have to say four years of business in that store. I don't think I made a penny, um, <laughs> you know, but I learned a lot. Yeah. I learned what I didn't want to do, which was a funny thing. Um, 
it was a very different business to the one I'm doing today. It was bottom end shopping center. It really wasn't who I was. It wasn't where I trained, but it was a start in business, you know, and it was a stepping stone. I think business was the key word there for me. So at this stage, Paul, had you actually studied anything about business? No, nothing at all. I can, I had not, not one thing and but I learned a lot very quickly. Okay, so that was your four-year business degree right there in your first store. Yeah, business degree went a lot longer than that. But <laughs> in, when you're in business, you never stop learning. But it was the start. And some people say that's great. And like I was young and, you know, I wasn't playing with a lot of money at the time, but it was a lot of money. I remember sitting down behind the counter on my first Christmas Eve, counting my money that I'd made and thinking, oh my God, I've arrived, if you know what I mean. And But... I'd spent it all. <laughs> so it was all gone two weeks later to suppliers, left, right and centre. But I was lucky enough after four years, I noticed a building in Dublin city centre. Um, I talked to my dad and we were able to buy this building then together. I put the business in, opened up in the city centre and now I was going to be selling what I wanted to sell. So we opened up selling diamonds and I wanted to be in the diamond industry. The watch industry was very difficult to break into. And at that point, I hadn't been able to build, break into it. But I knew the potential of the building that I'd bought was big enough that if I, um, I put my business plan together, I wanted to break it into a few units, rent out a part, have income coming in. It all went fantastically well. Uh, so this was in 1994. The, the business then, um, I was able to get into the city centre, do business. I started with 35 diamond rings and I, I sort of looked at all my competitors and I reckoned if I could take their leftovers um, or the, the crumbs off their plate I knew I'd be able to create a business that could pay for my pay for the building. And Paul at this point were you creating your own jewellery brand Paul Sheeran Jewellers a, really a, a brand with your name on it? Yeah it was that was it I suppose I didn't I, I learned about branding very quickly and I've always been I'm, I'm a total sponge. I'm going to say sponge as an absorber of what's going on, watching other places, watching how other people do it. Great idea. I'm not saying I'm an inventor, but I'm a, it's not even, you know, I'm, I remember Richard Branson saying this. He, he has, I think, taken other people's sometimes ideas and just done it a lot better. Exactly. It's not reinventing the wheel. It's making it that little bit better. Like I'm making diamond rings here. I'm making beautiful things. Mm. It's how you do it. So you put your spin on this industry. So I did that and it, it worked, thankfully, very successfully. You know, I had the right attitude. I have good work ethic. I, I just worked every hour. And it wasn't about the money, weirdly enough. It was more to me about the success, succeeding at what I did. I don't know why. I knew the money would come with success if you can understand that. So anyway, I, it gave me 1994 to, to 2000, gave me the opportunity to look at the market, or should I say 94 to 96, 97, to see what the next step was. So I was always, again, looking ahead. Where am I going with this? And I wanted to break into the watch industry. I knew the building I had wasn't good enough, so I did plans to knock it completely down, rebuild it, do what hadn't, hadn't been done in Dublin before. Brought this to the Basel Trade Fair, which was the biggest watch fair at the time. Phenomenal. And I went around, which was so uh, intimidating to go to this fair, to be... Potentially one of the only Irish people as well, I imagine. No, well, the, well, the big players were all there, but I was like um, just on someone's shoe. You know, I was not known by anybody. I kind of feel like that in Switzerland anyways. <laughs> you, know, you know, but I just was like, oh my God. And it was like standing on Fifth Avenue for the first time and looking at the surrounding buildings and going, how am I going to crack this? So 
I had this vision and I started putting it to the brands and slowly but surely I, I, I broke into the, some of the less important brands, but they were connected to the big groups. They were connected to LVMH or, or Richemont or whoever. And the brands that, I hate saying this, but sometimes nobody actually wanted, you know, so. And easier uh, access to bring these brands into the country. But I had this attitude myself to look, if I take the brands that nobody wants, if I can get into these companies, I'll be the number one salesperson of these watches in Ireland and I will convince them that I'm worth a chance. And that's what I did. And relationships, I built good relationships and from one thing it led to another and I was able then in 2000 to break into the, the branded watch industry properly, break into the LVMHs, break into the Richemonts, break into the you know Breitling and luxury watches which really made me happy and that did, that was a massive turning point in my business life um, because that elevated our jewellery that elevated our entire business. So we then had a roller coaster in Ireland, as the world would know, from 2000 to 2007, possibly 2008. I can imagine you sold a lot of diamonds and a lot of watches during that time of economic growth in Ireland. We sold a lot of diamonds, a lot of watches, a lot of really huge, I mean, sometimes pinch yourself, jewellery, like serious, serious Julie, and that was lovely. And, and you know, that's what I felt I'd been trained for. So the watches were trained for, the jewellery, I'd really enjoying it and making this. So it was a really enjoyable journey. Now, there's your business school, okay? Your, and your, your biggest lesson in business school is about to happen. 2008, when your business collapses. So the Irish economy fell off a cliff. Not just my business, the entire Irish economy. Every journalist in the world was situated here in Kildare Street outside our government buildings at points and every bank collapsed every business collapsed and it was daunting I mean I think we dropped by I think 60% within weeks not over a long time like just bump so that was a very difficult situation to be in and there's your business school this is where you graduate yes and you've had another one recently with the pandemic when retail all but closed yeah we did and I think we manage that very well. So I think learning from the last one, you know, we had a very tough time for the for the years after that, working with banks. It wasn't just working with saving your business. You had the banks were in a bad situation. You're working with your banks. Your banks were pulling out of the country. You know, there was great opportunities because they were um, happy to do deals and stuff like that. Getting the deal wasn't necessarily the problem. Getting, no, getting the money to pay for the deal with the bank. Yeah. Sorry, this is just the banking. So this was a totally different direction for a few years. You were, your business was, in Ireland, it was just survival. Other business people, I think there's a lot of people still have a little twitch on the head because of <laughs> the effects of that period in Ireland. Thankfully, we came through it. Thankfully, it was brilliant. Stabilised everything and moved forward. We, we made the decisions at the time to cut anything that really wasn't appropriate to the Irish market and concentrate on what was selling. So not have any dust on the shelves, to use the phrase. So that was a very good business decision. We brought our business back to five brands from about 15. We brought it back to Tag Heuer, IWC, Gégélo Coultre, uh, Longines and Breitling. And those brands worked perfectly. Fantastic. So, Paul, if I bring it back to the Irish market, you've been building the foundations of the watches and jewellery industry here for over 30 years now. And you've seen it evolve. You've seen many of the world renowned and sought after brands finally arriving into the country, a lot of them that you have brought in. Can you tell me about the landscape of the industry here and the type of clientele that you really have today? in modern Ireland? Ireland, again, going back to 2008, it fell off a cliff. And I can remember there's a very, um, very, very good Irish economist and he referred to Ireland in 2000 and 
I think, 11 or 12 as a country held underwater like a table tennis or like a table tennis ball held underwater. And there was a total to use the phrase, resetting of the Irish economy. A lot of American investment came in, a lot of world investment came in to Ireland. All the Googles, the Intels, the Microsofts, every head office of every IT company in the world, a huge amount of them came to Ireland. So now the whole um, business direction in Ireland changed where it was property-based, no longer property-based. It was um, much more diverse. We have one of the aviation leasing capitals of the world, IT capitals, pharma. We have so many different industries in Ireland. So Ireland, a new Ireland was being built and an awful lot of new people were coming out of the woodwork. You know, we were just doing our thing. So we always had, to use the phrase, eyes on the prize. Again, always thinking ahead, where's the right building for the next move? Tech-powered luxury sponsor Solista Beauty is best known for their award-winning cult favourite instant facials. Solista Beauty have evolved their initial lineup, offering a targeted selection of products, catering from hair care through to face, hands, feet and body for a holistic approach to wellness. As the global leader in cryo-powered beauty, Solista harnesses the incredible power of cryo since inception, recently picking up the highly coveted global award at Cosmoprof Worldwide 2023 for the newly launched Solista Cryo Cool Skin Tool. The tech-powered luxury community enjoys a 15% discount when shopping at solistabeauty.com. Use the code TPL15 at checkout. Paul, I'm sitting here inside the newly opened boutiques on Chatham Street, the first of their kind in Dublin, Ireland. Can you tell me about why you chose these specific seven brands and how you see the evolution of these brands in Ireland over the next months and years? I wanted to deal with what I'm going to say, the top 10 or 12 brands. Again, I love what I do, but I have to make money. So in our industry, it's very, the Irish market is a, there is a process here for us also of education, educating the Irish market about our industry. Watches and watch industry, it can be quite commercial and it can also be extremely niche. So we have watches that people would know every day. You know, people will know, you know, we have fantastic brands here, Tag Heuer, you know, so um, Breitling, Tudor, uh, Hublot, Cartier, Gégé Lecoultre, IWC, Panerai. We then also have Mont Blanc locally as well in another boutique. But you, why do we have these brands together? Because they all flow. They, you know, I, uh, Tag Heuer will start at about, 1250 euros you know and when we can finish you know, we can roll then into Tudor we can roll into Breitling we can roll into Hublot Cartier and all the price points um roll very well and you can then move up to watchmaking um that when you get into Jeger IWC and Panerai which will bring us to any level we want in watchmaking so you know they bring us into the hundreds of thousands and they, these are watchmakers watches they're not about loads of diamonds or anything like that this is about horology about beautiful complications about minute repeaters perpetual calendars so but there's different levels of watches a bit different reasons to buy a watch and then different levels of watchmaking so you have a simple three-hand timepiece and look we're here to celebrate and we're here to celebrate life and like our business what is luxury I actually was asking myself this question earlier before you know we sat down and luxury is not necessary you know it's something we're really lucky to have and a luxury in life is something that's above and beyond our daily needs. And it's usually a treat. 
you know, and so it's a feel good factor for an achievement or a special something in your life, uh, be it clothing, going somewhere special or, you know, so you want to feel special about it. And it doesn't, the price of that luxury is not necessarily important, but we're here and our job is to offer you the opportunity to enjoy a luxury and how, what you want to spend is very much your business. We're here to offer you the spending opportunity and do that in a very nice, beautiful environment where you feel really special, whether you spend a thousand euros or 100,000 euros we can look after you and make you feel like you've just been, um, I was going to say, kissed by Julia Roberts. <laughs> but you know what I mean. And that's really at the core of the luxury industry, actually. So it's that feeling and it's certainly not selling a product whose price correlates with performance. That is what we would call premium or prestige brands. So it's far beyond that. It's not if I pay more, I'm going to have a watch that functions better. Or if I pay more, my bracelet is going to have superpowers. It's it's really not the role of luxury, actually, to correlate price with function. Um, you're buying from a brand whose DNA and values you associate or want to associate yourself with. And often you're investing in a craft or in an art, uh, an artisanal way of creating products, perhaps. And that's why education actually plays a key part when it comes to the luxury industry. Each brand we have has a different theme and that's what makes this building so very special to us because with every boutique you walk into, we're also very lucky that we were able to get the industry to agree to let us walk from one to the other in the back of house yeah. where normally these are boutiques where you have to walk out the front door into another one. And there's definitely by people who buy watches buy watches. They don't buy a watch. Most of the people we have, and we would be growing this market of, of collectors, and people who have, and again, an entry, people, their first watch may very well be a tag. Yes. And actually, Paul, that's what I wanted to ask. When it comes to your customers today, do you expect them to evolve from one brand to another over time? Are you planning on cross-selling? And why did you why did you really select these specific brands? Because they're the brands I want. and They're the brands everyone wants. Yeah. Some brands are less known. Let's say, you know, let's take... Um, IWC or Jejula Kulto, they'll be more discerning brands. And to the very commercial person, they may not recognise them. Yes, exactly. They're far more inconspicuous in terms of their branding. Everyone's saying it right now, quiet luxury. It's really having a moment trending even on TikTok. But when you say, do we want to sell? We want, we, we develop people in our industry and even, it doesn't matter which brand we have. We have opportunity. I, I, I know I mentioned Tag Heuer, but it also, Tag Heuer would just launch a watch there recently, I think they were for, worth a half a million at the trade fair. There's no, people go forward and back from brand to brand and they buy, today they buy this, tomorrow they buy that. They might like a car tea. They have different wear. They have different, watches are, are like jewellery or clothing that you decide on what I'm going to, how I'm going to be attired today and what will I wear with this jacket or or this maybe a pair of combats I want something rougher you know they all complement and I find it's a world when people come into it they get sucked into it um, and they end up oh my god you know they're looking at three and they're kind of going like I want all three of them uh, it's my 35th yes exactly you can give them all three yeah but it's my 35th today someone will say I'm going to get that for my 40th or I'm going to get that if I get promoted or I'm going to get that if I do this business and then people don't feel guilty about buying it yeah. luxury guilt there's no luxury guilt I completely agree I'm a victim of many of my own marketing campaigns that is for sure who's your brother <laughs> Tech Powered Luxury is sponsored by 
the incredibly innovative skincare brand Solista Beauty and all of our listeners have 15% off their online orders with the code TPL15. If you're wondering what my go-to products are, they are firstly the Cryo Cool Skin Tool, which is a small but very mighty device that requires no charging or keeping of the fridge. It's really just a ready-to-go skin tool that uses the power of cryo technology to soothe, depuff and lift the complexion for a healthy glow. I use the tool as part of my morning skincare routine to depuff and awaken the skin. And at the end of the day, when my skin is feeling hot or irritated, and it really helps to minimize inflammation, reduce redness. Of course, the tool is even more effective when used with your serum, so before moisturizing. And I use the Cryo Cool Tool with the Solista Super Serums to increase absorption. My favorite serum is the Hydration Super Serum. This is a super clever innovation and I love that the tool requires absolutely no maintenance, which in general for me is the biggest blocking point when it comes to using skin tools. So this one, you really don't have to do anything with it. And it's easy to bring with you while traveling or in your bag when you're going to the gym and it's super compact. Its design even allows for the serum bottle to connect into it directly and to be used as a handle. So it's absolutely genius. And as I said, all of our listeners have 15% off on the Solista Beauty website, which is solistabeauty.com using the code TPL15. Una McGurk is the CEO and founder of the brand. She's absolutely incredible. And of course, I am highly appreciative that Una believed not just in tech powered luxury, but in myself as well to come on board as a partner for this season. And she also lent an hour of her time to come on as a guest. So if you haven't listened to Una, episode yet I highly recommend doing so not just to learn about skincare because I really did learn so much about skin and hair care actually in her episode but also about how to build a business from the ground up she has built multiple businesses she has actually created launched and sold businesses and she gives really really honest insight into how she did it how she built company culture also into how she found the capital to launch her business and that for me was one of the most incredible insights as someone who definitely aspires to building multi-million um, dollar brands in the future. Like, how do you get that capital to, to begin that journey? And I won't give any more insights into what she says, but she does give a lot of information on how she did so within her episode. So I highly recommend making sure that you go back and listen to that one as well. But without further ado, let's jump back into this episode and continue with our chats about all things luxury technology and beyond. So today you're moving into this new era for your business, Paul Sheeran Jewelers, but you're also keeping Paul Sheeran Jewelers the original and your strategy is going to slightly shift now because obviously you won't have the same product offering in these new boutiques on Chatham Street and in your jewelers in Westbury Mall. So could you Talk to me about that. Like at that point, um, are you going to look at having two completely different spaces? Are you keeping your, you know, your original jewelers? What what is the vision behind that? So we've we've separated watches and di- and jewelry for the moment. To be honest with you, if I had the space, I'll have it all together. So it is. They definitely work hand in hand. But our diamond market is fantastic, and we we are predominantly like we're 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 really happy to have this whole. All of our environments, be it Mont Blanc, be it Diamonds, 
be it the watch environment here, and to aim it at the Irish market ultimately. So our diamond ring business is a very classic Irish thing. So some international countries don't go for diamond engagement rings as much as in Ireland. And a, a diamond ring is is very much a cement of a relationship. And it's usually the first big piece of purchase that a couple will make together. You know, I see a girl looking at her hand and she just smiles. And again, it's not about the value of that diamond ring. Yeah. It's her diamond ring and it's hers and it's what it signifies. But that's a moment in life. And that's when a couple start buying nice things. So our diamond ring is a huge entry into our market that when people buy a diamond ring, then generally a lot of ladies might want to buy him a nice watch or partners buy each other a nice watch. Our business complements each other very well, if you know what I mean. And diamonds are a girl's best friend, watches are a boy's diamonds. <laughs> oh, well, Paul, on that point, I would actually love to know more about the role that women are playing in the watch sales. Are you seeing more women investing in watches today? Absolutely. So all of our brands now, again, where sometimes you think of very male, every single brand, Cartier. I mean, show me a person who doesn't want to wear a Cartier watch, a lady. It's beautiful. There you go. Wearing mine here. Uh, so is Alison, all fans of Cartier. There you go. Two ladies in front of me and two wearing their Cartier watches. So they're, they're just such an elegant brand. And again, nice, demure, beautiful looking luxury. So again, but all of our brands, Jeje La Coultre, beautiful, you know, and now Panerai has brought out these lovely, funky 40 millimeter, you know, 38 millimeter watches. But every brand, Tudor, fantastic wearable watches. Every brand, Breitling, IWC have ladies' watches. So the ladies' markets are getting much stronger and ladies are, are actually coming around where, where once ladies watches were very quartz, okay, now we have ladies who are coming in who want to know about watchmaking and they want to automatic or mechanical watches. So our industry has, has beautifully educated the end user, to use the phrase, to the, the it's, it's not, you can tell the time on your phone. There's no reason to be late. A watch is a lot more than that. And it, you, people buy into that brand, as you said, be it, be it, and I, I, I'm not trying to repeat myself deliberately, but be it a tag might be more avant-garde, you know, as, as brightly might be sporty, Tudor, elegant, and if you know what I mean, a tool watch. Um, Hublot is very, you know, fusion of time. Cartier, you know, with the must tank and, the, the you know, the, the tank Francais, the beautiful... Bleu. There's so many opportunities, the rendezvous in, in Jeje Le Coultre. Each brand has its story, as you said, and its history. And people, when they buy a watch, there is much buying into that beautiful story of, you know, if somebody thinks of Cartier, they instantaneously think of probably Place Vendôme in Paris. You know, they, they'll think of Fifth Avenue, New York and Bond Street, the three pillars. Yes, exactly. And where the three Cartier brothers were as well. But each brand has its story. You know, and as I said, if I think of Tag Heuer, I might think of Formula One. They'll all, you, I sometimes think if we we're going to put a scent in each of these brands, we'd have petrol in some, we'd have seawater in others, you know, we'd have perfume in others. There's, there's, they all are something. In our luxury world, why does anyone buy any brand? Because they like what it stands for. They like the style. Some people like a brand to be way out there and crazy and wild. And other people like, sometimes the more refined they get, the more quiet they get. Yeah. The less... Um, noticeable the branding is but it'll be more about the actual quality of the material or the mm, stitching. Which seeing a lot of right now the rise of quiet luxury look at Laura Piana basically unbranded um, I think it's Bruno Cuccinelli as well yes all in very muted tones. But not not highly branded just high quality but our watch industry is the same you know IWC 
we kind of say the people who need to know know the ones who don't don't you know it's not only like a private club that people can wear 50,000 on the wrist and you know you can still go to your bank manager and he doesn't know yes exactly you won't get in trouble you won't get in trouble I'm saying a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know but then the people who do know will give you a clip on the arm and say nice watch so there's a respect for the more niche watches with a lot of people sometimes so Paul when it comes to technology tech powered luxury we are a tech and a luxury podcast at the end of the day and we always like to know how things intersect so especially for you when it comes to the consumer facing side of things digital media your presence online social media, online sales, how key is that to your business today? And do you think that this is going to increase in importance over the next months and years? So I love nice cars. I spend so much time online configurating my dream car at home, whichever brand that is, you know, and yet I'll never buy it online. And I feel most girls who are going to look at a diamond ring, they look at an sitting on the sofa at home on their phone way before they actually go to the jewellery shop. Mm, making Pinterest boards, Instagram folders, loads of online research. I'm someone that does all of these things myself all the time when I'm really thinking about a purchase or even a trip. It's really just part of my behaviour online. And I think anyone who's buying any thing in our industry, they know so much about it before they even enter our store. They've nearly made their decision to purchase before they enter your store. So online is fantastic for the education process, for helping the sales process. And Instagram is also there for what's new on the market today. And, you know, we'll have so many inquiries when a new watch drops, you know, around the world that all of a sudden, hey, Paul, when's this in? Can I try it on? I'd really like that. And digital media and technology is brilliant in that direction. Online sales, I, I think we'll always sell online and it's obviously another door for us to sell and it's another opportunity. It's never going to be the biggest part of our business. It's going to be a complement to our business. I think the, the beautiful part of luxury is the experience of purchase, of coming into a nice environment. We've invested millions into this building now and we want you to come in and have a nice glass of champagne, have a nice glass of coffee, enjoy a nice glass of whiskey. 100%. It's, it's hard, if not impossible, to replicate that magic online. You know, it's, you can't replicate it online. You never can. It's a press of a button and I sometimes feel, where is the, where is the love? excuse me for saying it, but then I ask myself sometimes from a shopping point of view, is it not, I'm not saying an addiction, but it's not giving you the same adrenaline rush when you come in and enjoy the overall experience. And point being that if someone buys a nice diamond ring, if someone buys a nice watch, they'll usually combine it in Dublin here with maybe lunch in the Westbury or, or lunch in another nice restaurant locally. Absolutely, it's a full ritual. And we find our market. As I said, it's an Irish market. We have people, there's no city in Dublin, in Ireland, it's in two hours drive away. So people like to come to Dublin and now we're trying to make Dublin a better place to shop. And I think we're succeeding in doing that, you know, more beautiful, better presence and more stylish. So I hope we're adding to the overall, how to put it, texture and structure of the Irish market, retail market. So digital, it's brilliant. But it's, I'd much rather have bricks and mortar for what we do, you know, so I don't think digital will ever beat the bricks and mortar side of our business worldwide. But there's also a smell to this building today. It's sensory selling and each brand, some of the brands have their sense. We walk into Mont Blanc, we'll smell lovely scents. You walk into each of these brands. Cartier as well, they have a really strong perfume business now. Tiffany's, we're, we're seeing a lot more of this. It's not just the fashion brands that have a fragrance now, but it's also watches, jewellery and beyond. Correct, that's it. But I mean, but you smell the leather of the watch. It's lovely. You can't replicate any of this online. You can try, 
but you won't succeed. So, you know, I think that, that that experience will always win. And that's a world over thing. So I think experience, experiential shopping is for our industry where it's at. The better the experience, the better the environments, the better the customer service, the better the journey the person has. I think the more likely we are to sell and it's not difficult and it's not, it's so enjoyable because it doesn't seem like work. It's just a natural flow. I think you sort of mentioned that sentence earlier, natural flow, and it is that natural flow. You mentioned joy, love, passion. These are all the things that are key to the luxury industry, but also for clients, you have to be happy and you have to feel that joy. But they're the moments they're celebrating. And that's why I think many people who work in the luxury industry never want to leave because you can't necessarily find that in other industries. Correct, correct. Paul, I have one last question for you after hearing your incredible story journey and walking around the beautiful premises here on Chatham Street in Dublin. I would love to know what advice you would give to people on the one skill that they can start developing today. What would that skill be? I talk about having a good business acumen. I learned it. I didn't get go to college for it. I probably learned that from highs and lows of actual running a business. Maybe I'm lucky that I've survived, but I don't know, can you ever really learn that in college because I think a lot of things you learn in college you, until you're actually running a business you don't know the pitfalls that are going to come up tomorrow do you know what I, I will say one skill I have which I value dearly is I do believe that every problem has a solution and no matter what comes at you you face it you look at the solution you make the decision you deal with it get it done good communication so is very important with all of your um, partners you know, in business, I think that's a very, very important thing. Having a passion, I'm very lucky. I, I have a really good passion for what I do. There is not a day that I don't look forward to coming into work, probably to the annoyance of my partner, you know, <laughs> that like, will you not take a day off? I just love coming in here. So advice, be honest, you know, be true to yourself. And your gut is a funny way of telling you things as well. I've learned over the years, your gut feeling is usually is, is, is uh, I've learned over and over again, it's generally right, my gut feeling. And be happy. It's really fantastic advice. This is probably the most joyful interview that I've ever conducted. So it's really clear that you love what you do, Paul. It absolutely radiates from you. And as I've walked through the boutiques here as well, you can see it in everyone that works for Paul Shearer and Jewelers. Uh, I hope so. so. I hope so. Thank you very much. And can I thank you? You know, you've <laughs> travelled 24 hours to get here. Yep, it was the longest journey of my life, actually, but I made it. Um, thank you so much. Any last words for Tech Powered Luxury listeners? Please come visit our environment in Dublin. I mean, this isn't just a, uh, for this shop is, is, we've built it in Ireland. It's in Dublin. We want to welcome the world to this store. We have tax-free opportunities here for anyone living outside Europe. It's a great place to shop. And we have boutique collections. So the collections we have are no different to Bond Street, New York, Paris. So it is a very good place and very competitive place with tax-free shopping to, to come and enjoy it. And Dublin's great. The Guinness, why would you not want to come to Dublin? Well, actually, I, I didn't bring it up earlier, but I, I heard a rumour that you might even be able to get a Guinness at some point in Paul Sheeran Jewelers. And I haven't heard of any other jewellery store in the world doing that. Maybe that's your, that's your USP. <laughs> we have the best Guinness in Ireland straight across the road for us with nearly our namesake called Sheehan's Pub. I'm going to drop him in there and he's the best guy ever, Paul Sheehan. But uh, uh, no, but it's actually lovely. And that's part of our environment. This is hospitality. We want to enjoy what we do. We want you to enjoy coming into our store. That's our target. And it, I only see happy faces. That makes me happy, you know, you know, and that's, that's it. 
There you go. Thank you, Ashley. Bye-bye. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Paul. So there you have it, Paul Sheeran. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with Paul and hearing about his whole journey from leaving school at 15 to what he has created today. Honestly, it's absolutely incredible. And it's because of people like Paul that I wanted to launch a podcast to begin with to discover their stories and to share them as well with the world and I mean they inspire me so I know that they're going to inspire other people as well and hopefully give people that little bit of motivation or inspiration to follow their own dreams and passions so if you are in Dublin or if you find yourself thinking where will your next trip in the world be make sure that you call into Paul Sheeran Jewelers and into their seven new incredible boutiques on Chatham Street so just off Grafton Street in the heart of Dublin City and I've had a few people say to me in the past that you know they've been a bit reluctant to step into a luxury store or they've been feeling like it's not the place that they belong and I just tell everybody go in we're all humans go in and have a good time and enjoy yourself because actually the experience that you can have in a luxury boutique can be really fun and you can you can if you're really like I'm not in here to buy something but I want to learn you can totally go in and say that I would love to know about your best-selling watch or I would love to know about your original jewellery design something like this because um, sometimes it's like going into a museum or an art exhibition perhaps you're not planning on buying something but if you work in the tech space or the luxury space or if you're just interested in general I highly encourage you get into retail spaces because that's where the magic happens and in general I find that all of the sales staff that work in these luxury uh, boutiques are incredibly passionate and so well versed on the history of their brands and all their individual pieces so I warn you now you might be at risk of making a purchase even if you don't plan on doing so because there's so much passion in these stores and I've definitely seen it in the couple of hours that I've been uh, spending already here in the beautiful seven new boutiques in uh, Dublin on Chatham Street under the Paul Sheeran jeweler brand and in particular of course Cartier which is a big favourite of mine but also Tag Tag Her I really really like the brand I love what they're doing right now and they have some beautiful women's watches as well so ladies if you're thinking of buying or investing in your first luxury watch they're the top two brands that I would recommend at the moment so there you go we have wrapped up season two of Tech Powered Luxury It's hard to believe it's been a bit of a journey. We're going to take a two week break for the whole team to really be able to sit back, relax and um, maybe catch up on some actual listening to the season as well so we can learn and come back with something even stronger. Um, We've got some incredible guests lined up for season three, some that I've had on my my wish list since... uh, since pre-launch, since pre-even idea of having a podcast. So I really can't wait uh, for everyone to hear all of the exciting concepts, news, ideas and stories from uh, these different speakers. Thank you again so much. And as always, don't forget to like, share, comment, send the podcast episode to someone who you think might enjoy it. And we really appreciate anyone who, of course, gives the podcast a follow on any of the platforms or across socials. And all of the reviews make a huge, huge impact on our rankings. So we really appreciate that too. 